Well, it's um, good to be back and to see your faces. I was away last weekend, um, actually, and you saw in the newsletter I sent it in Charleston, great city, and um, contact with ministry contact and a ministry supporter as well and friend. Um, great opportunities there, um, an area that's growing, and we often think about the new um, even plant a church in that area as the southeast is just booming and growing everywhere. Um, Californians are finding their way there, and people from the northeast are finding their way there. Um, but we're here, amen? amen? And this is a good place to be, is it not? The best place to be is always in God's will, regardless of where that may take you. And if you can be there, then you will be blessed indeed. Um, the words before us are ways to help us understand God's will. This isn't a message about God's will. It um, is a message that tells us that God's will will be fulfilled. His promises will come true, just like we have a living hope. How do we know we have that hope? How do we know that when we die and if we die in Christ, that um, we will see him as he is? How do we know that we'll be raised again how do you know anything that the Bible claims to be true? Um, we have to go back to a belief in God and who he is. Um, I would say that um, we could or should trust that he will keep every one of his promises. Should we not? We should. All right. Now, that's not the introduction yet. <laughs> Before I do that, um, there's a brief announcement I need to make. Um, Sundays at the Hargroves is on the way, and we have four couples that are going to help with it, and then others that will may help those couples as well. So April 24th, um, out, out of the gates, um, that's the Dre's, is it not? Yeah, you're going to do that. So Connor and Janet, Janet's in the nursery right now, so um, they will be heading that up. And then May 29th, a couple from May 29th, I'm looking. Okay, there they are, Cisneros. All right, right there, stand up so the other side can see you. So from the Cisneros right there. And then June 5th, June 5th. Okay, there they are, used. Okay, great, right there. And we have some themes already. I think we're going to go with, um, we're going to have Mexican. Mm. We're going to have Asian. <laughs> and we're going to have, it's going to be a combination um, theme as well. It's going to be very interesting on to start us off in April. But um, someone that's new to us, they're going to head up one of the Sundays, the Belks, right here. Now, they're from Texas, so do you think, what, do you know what they may do? <laughs> so not everyone signed up for June 12th, right? <laughs> so I think, and I know someone, as I think, I know someone that can help you with uh, <laughs> That can help, or Burbank, right? No. <laughs> that can help with the barbecue, but it would just be a braai. So I'm, I'm just thinking that the Muslers can help you with that, right? Is that true? I just recruited them, but I think they may be back in South Africa by then. But in the future, we can definitely do that. I think that's a great combination, a braai, um, sort of South African, and barbecue merged together. That's a great combination, all right? Notice I didn't mention anything about salads at all. <laughs> Yeah, right, this meat lover's um, theme, that's what that is, wow. Okay, thank you so much. So we're going to have uh, sign-ups that will start next week for that. Uh, we'll have a perfect potluck, we'll have a QR code where you can just go directly to it, but also um, the you know traditional manner of, of sign-up lists as well, and we'll transfer it over. So what about that, each group will have 50 slots available. Now, that could mean if it's couples, if every couple signed up, that's 100 people plus kids. We've come close to that before at our house, so that's not a problem. So we want you to sign up for it and love for you who have not been to our home to come out and visit with us. Uh, and here's a, who has not been to our home before? All right, so this is going to be fun. Um, well, I, I think it will be fun. Those of you who have been there, is it a, it's a blast, right? Yeah, absolutely it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> What's that? 
Yeah, you should bring your chairs, like your favorite lawn chair, whatever. Bring your chair, bring a blanket. We'll be indoors, outdoors as well. So it'll be a great time. We'll have, you know, it'll be a good time. Now we need to go to the Word of God. Amen? Uh, capable of keeping His promises. Um, just pray with me. Lord, thank you for your words before us. I pray that it would encourage the hearts of all that are here. Uh, give me mercy to communicate it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Capable of keeping his promises, part two. Uh, the last time we were together, we looked at this entire chapter, 12 to 31, and gave an overview. And I gave you, there were seven sort of breakdowns in the passage itself, truths that communicate that God is now making a case that he is very much capable of keeping every one of his promises. Uh, this is the point of 12 to 26, and then we're going to focus on verses 12 to 20 um, this morning. And maybe from the onset, I'll say this. Uh, most likely, you've all had some measure of doubt in your Christian journey. Uh, moments when your faith is not matured enough um, to arrest what I would say, arrest the worries of life and sentence them to submit to divine truth. We go through life and we have doubts. And what strong faith does, a faith that is built on a proper view of the living God, it arrests those worries and those anxieties and those doubts. And I went further and I said this, that they're sentenced to submit to divine truth. That is, in one sense it's saying, I see that you're there, I arrest you and I sentence you to divine truth. And what do I mean by divine truth? The truths that we're going to notice in this passage. The truths that we see here and other places as well. It might be the truths that say, for instance, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he is saying that you should not be anxious or, or don't worry. And, and what is the tr divine truth that they admit to in that context is your heavenly father, your heavenly father, your heavenly father. So it's the idea that, in fact, we have a Heavenly Father that is watching over us. He knows every aspect of our life. He knows even the lilies of the field. He knows even the birds that hop on the ground. Submit to that great truth. And why should you worry if you have a Father like that? A Heavenly Father. And what's even beautiful about the language in the Sermon on the Mount, that it is very particular because it, says, it is saying, the Heavenly, the Father. So he is equally heavenly as he is the Father. He is absolutely distinct. Trust him. And what we see here in Isaiah is another example of a God that is to be trusted. Now in these next three messages, uh, for the next uh, three weeks, um, we're going to worry. And I think they're provided by the argument of this passage. And I would say that these um, arguments obviously, in context, were meant for the people of God. They would be reading Isaiah's words 150 years after Isaiah, and there they are in captivity to Babylon. So 2,500 years ago, they're looking at these words, and they're wondering, is God on our side? Can he deliver us? Do I trust him and his word? His words are clearly spoken to Isaiah the prophet, but when I look around me, it doesn't seem like they can come true. When I look around me, it seems as if God has forsaken us. When I look around me, I see the power of the Babylonians. Is he capable of defeating the Babylonians? And remember, in the context of society, it would mean that Yahweh must defeat the God. Can God do that? And so these truths are for us as well. And I would say these same truths um, today will assuage, I would say, your fears today. They will soften them. They will put them aside if we trust as we should. And when we look at God's word, we see that God is constantly doing what? He is reaffirming these moral commands that were given thousands of years ago, but they're relevant today. He's reaffirming these principles that were given thousands of years 
ago, but they're relevant today in 2022. And surely he's reaffirming the instructions to the people of God that you must trust this God because he is absolutely worthy of your trust. He is a God to be worshipped, is he not? He is a God that is all sufficient, is he not? That is all wise, that is all knowing, that is all powerful. Why would you not trust him? So Yahweh was sufficient then, and Yahweh is sufficient now. The template, in one sense, hasn't changed. You have doubts, look to me. Today, you have doubts, look to the living God. These words are divinely inspired, and because they're divinely inspired, then we can rest even our very soul on them. And so we can say that doubt comes in various forms and and at various times. Uh, We've learned that even from Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8. And again, I affirm to you these great truths that are saying God's word will stand forever. Man is like the flower of the field. He will sprout up and he will wither away. I mean, we look around us, we didn't get much rain this year in Southern California. You remember there were a couple weeks it rained heavily for several days. And where we are in Canyon Country, you can see some of the green that's finally, perhaps over the last three weeks, it's coming out. But come June and July, what's going to happen to it all? It will all be brown again. I don't know if I ever told you this story. It was when the home that we have, when we went to uh, look at the home, we... It was actually in the wintertime. We'd had a lot of rain that year when we moved, uh, the year that we were, before we moved in. So we looked at it, and I'll never forget it. The hills were, it was like the hills are alive. Now, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> With the sound of green, right? <laughs> I mean, it was really quite beautiful. And I remember looking out one of our windows upstairs thinking, this is so great. We can look out of this window and see these green hills. And I was even thinking about a color scheme to sort of blend with the the hills that were there. And I thought, wait a minute, wake up, man. (laughs) This is Southern California. It's all going to burn. And it's going to be gone. And guess what? There's more brown than there is what? Green. Because just like man, sometimes he is that way. He sprouts up. And for a moment he says, I will trust the living God. I will rest in him. I will serve him, I will love him, I will worship him, and then it turns to brown. Hmm, that's unfortunate. But what is fortunate is this, (laughs) the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, never changes, amen? (laughs) There is no green and brown with him. There are no highs and lows. There is no faithfulness, unfaithfulness. There is no consistency, inconsistency. He is always and forever the same. And in that we can trust and we must rest. It's a beautiful thought. Here's a thought for you. Found guilty. Found guilty. Why do I mention found guilty? Because I have said before and I'll say to you again, what Isaiah is doing here in these next verses, he is saying, here is my argument that indeed I can be trusted. In one sense, it's as if he is putting forth a court case, and here, are the, here is the evidence that I present to you that says God must be exonerated. He is not guilty of unfaithfulness. But I did some research into a number of court cases and found one that um, actually it was reversed in 1989. It was reversed but he had spent, um, I think it was 14 years on death row. A former Marine committed a heinous crime against a young girl and circumstantial evidence and some eyewitnesses um, pinned him at this location and thought that he had committed this crime. And he was on row. Imagine that, found guilty. All the evidence said that you committed this crime. Now he was saying that he didn't, I did not commit this crime. Witnesses are saying, yes, you're the person. Circumstantial evidence says, yes, you're the person. And now you are facing death. Guilty. The prosecutors presented their case. The jury decided there was enough evidence that he would be found guilty. And it's as if when it comes to the people of God in Babylon, in exile, they're saying, I look around and I see circumstances Um, 
My eyes tell me that we're in exile. My, my eyes tell me that these other gods must be the superior God because they defeated the Assyrians. They must be the superior God because Yahweh has forsaken us. We have been here for decades and decades and decades. Where is God? And they would perhaps even say to Yahweh, you're guilty of unfaithfulness. But of course, we know that's not true. But I think if we're honest, to in some level, all of us at some point in time have said, God, I'm not sure that you're faithful. It's a horrible sin, and it is a sin. Some people say, well, anxiety or worry is really not a sin. It's just an emotional state. No, it's a choice to say, I will not trust you. It's a sin to say, God, I don't believe that you can provide for me in the circumstances I find myself. Now, people find themselves in various circumstances, and it's always interesting to me, you know, teaching at the seminary, and uh, at the end of the semester, you have seniors come up and give a senior testimony, and several men will come up for several weeks, and they're talking about their moments in my life when I thought, get through this. There are moments in our life when I was ready to pack up my family and move them back home because we had run out of money. There are moments in our life I was wondering, how can I afford to stay here? You know, some of these students come from around the world, and they, particularly those that perhaps come from here in the States, and you come from an area where you can rent a four-bedroom home for $750 a month. I know you're, some of you are gasping, right? You're thinking, you know, that was in 1919 in California, <laughs> not today. And then they come and they're renting a studio for $1,800 a month. Painful. And they're wondering, how can I get through this? And then I know some, they're working and they have a family. And then we put them to the test when it comes to the, their academic rigors. And they're saying to themselves, how can I get through But time and time and time again, actually for over nearly four decades, men have, because God was faithful. God provided. You hear students saying, I got a check in the mail. You hear students saying, you know what? They brought me groceries. You hear students say, this person said, I've owned this home. You know, just pay me this amount for rent. God is a faithful God, is he not? And we should trust him absolutely. So in this passage, 12 to 20, I want us to consider this. Four truths. There are four truths that remind us of God's ability to keep his promises. It's a court case in one sense. Isaiah is putting forth the evidence, breathing him by the spirit of God to say, trust me in every circumstance, people of God. And it's saying today, 2,500 years later, Trust me in every circumstance, people of God. Here is truth that we should consider. Number one, God will keep his promises because he is creator. He is creator. Notice um, verse 12, but before we even look simply at verse 12, notice who and whom. So a series of questions. These rhetorical questions put forth uh, with the sense to say, I put forth this question, what is your answer? Let me provide you with the answer. Notice verse 12, who has measured? Verse 13, who has directed? Verse 14, with whom did he consult? It tells us. And then verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? And so in this first um, question, Isaiah puts forth, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked out the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed in a balance and the hills on a pair of scales. So uh, notice the language. So measured, marked, calculated, weighed. And then it's met with the hollow of his hand, the span, the measure, the balance and the scales. Isaiah begins this sort of succession of rhetorical questions that are meant to highlight what? The absolute uniqueness of God. And Old Testament scholar Oswald succinctly states the point of this passage, and he says this, the assertions point to the heart of biblical religion. God is one without any pantheon. He is a sole creator. He is beyond nature, not part of it. 
And indeed, this is our God. And when he says, if you've not heard the word pantheon before, we think about a pantheon of gods. Uh, It's not something that we use in today's thinking, but it would have been true culture of that day. Uh, These many gods and some of these gods having unequal power to the other. And this is important as we're going to consider later on. So keep that thought in your mind. God is beyond nature itself. God is not amongst other gods. God is one, an unchanging being. Um, Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 96, turn there with me, Psalm 96. And what does it tell us there? It reminds us of Isaiah's message, which he will communicate later on, really in verses 18 to 20. But here he states in Psalm 96, 5, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord did what? What did he do? He made the heavens. Trust him. So the imagery of it, he's measured the water. So take all the oceans and all the lakes and all the creeks and all the rivers and all the seas, and they're in the hollow of his hands. Now, my hands are fairly big, um, but they cannot hold all the oceans in them. It's a picture that says they're nothing to the living God. You think about, to remember uh, Gideon, um, as there were certain men that were having to lap um, the water. Remember that? And think about that for a moment. I don't know if you've ever been hiking or something like that, and and you don't have something to drink with. I've done it, and I've stopped by Creekside, and I get as much water as I can in my hand, and it's like this, and I do it again and again and again because I can't hold very much there. That's why, I, I, you know, I left my 40-ounce Yeti at home. And now this is the best that I can do. And look at poor me. It takes me six hours to quench my thirst from a flowing river. And it says of God, every water that exists is right here. Not in a literal sense, obviously. But it is communicating what? God is so vast and capable. It is insignificant to him is what he is saying. And then he says, he has calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. And then he's weighed the mountains on a balance. A balance, we think about uh, in commerce, that there would be an equal balance. And we weigh out um, this amount of meat versus this. And he says, the mountains are just like that. You know, some of you follow me when I go for my walks or preaching runs, as I call them. And I was out this morning. It was beautiful. It was really early because of the the time change, and I waited a little bit later. But it's always wonderful when I'm out, and I see that sun coming over the mountains. There's just something about it. You look around, and you see the valley below. And and maybe it was about a month ago I, I went for, I was doing some time to fast and pray, and I went up into the hills that are at the end of, if you know, Via Princesa, and you can go up the elevation, got up to about, it's not that much, but for around here, I got up to about 2,300 feet. And it was beautiful to look back in the valley. And as uh, the lights were going down, you could see just uh, cars going by. There were just glimmers of light. And I looked to the other side, and you can look and see Placerita Canyon. Then I looked out towards the mountains as far as my eye could see. And I'm saying to myself, my creator made all these things. Why should I worry? He, it's like to him, it's just like little Lego toys <laughs> that he can put one on top of the other. And not even that, they weigh nothing to him, he says. Notice what is he says. The heels in a pair of scales. So just the thought is direct and straightforward. So he is, in fact, the creator. Why should we not trust him? He's made all things. He made Babylon. He gave um, the kings of Babylon life. Trust him. Here's a second truth that will help us and surely would help the people of God in times past. God will keep his promises because he is all wise. He is all wise. An all wise God. Notice verses 13 and 14. Again, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? 
or his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and, and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And the answers to each one is obvious. No one has done this. Fourth, a rhetorical question to cause them to think in their minds, what is the answer to this? And that's often true when it comes to counseling, at least I've found over the years, in counseling someone that you put forth the question, not ready to give the answer, but you want that person to do what? Someone say it. What do you want them to do? To think. You put forth a question, and now it forces them to think about a scripture, or it forces them to think about a principle, or maybe it forces them to think about their sin, or maybe it forces them to say to themselves, surely this is a path of joy. And then you put forth that question to them, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I know what I need to do. (laughs) I've had people say that many times. I already know what I need to do. I know what you're going to say to me. Then now the question is, if you knowing that, What's your response to that? And so the question, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or his counselor has? Go with me to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. There you go. And then in verse 1, it says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. He calculates the motives. He measures out the motives. He is in absolute control of every circumstance. And all of us have had some plans, have we not? I'm sure you have. A quick survey um, for everyone that's in the room right now. How many of you are doing exactly the thing that you had planned earlier in your life? My hands are just possible. You could have been on the path of the Lord early in life, and it was a pure plan, and you're doing, hmm, isn't that curious? My hands are surely down. I never thought that I would be standing before you here in March 2022 preaching from Isaiah. That was not in my plan. But would you also say this, because God is an all-wise God, would you also say that you're thankful that the Lord has changed your plan? God is an excellent editor, is he not? And we submit a manuscript to him, and he looks at it, and sometimes perhaps he smiles and says, oh, thank you so much. Uh, (laughs) Then he pulls out the red pen. (laughs) Uh, No, that's a run-on sentence, unacceptable uh, should be semicolon instead of a comma. This is much better. Nope, gerons, not the proper use here. This is what he does. And he alters our life. Say, thank you, Lord, that you have altered my life. And I ask you a question that is of the highest significance, and it is this. The greatest way that he's altered your life is in what? That you know the Lord. That you know him. Because all of us were on a path of destruction. And what did he do? Divine intervention steps in and he opens our eyes and we see the light and he draws us to himself. A counselor? Who needs a counselor? Now you remember earlier I talked about the pantheon. So this group of gods. And this is significant. We have to understand this because in the culture of today, we don't think that way that much because we are not faced with it. Um, If one grew up in India, and even today you think about the myriads and myriads of gods. Today, there are surely gods, but not in the way that they would have thought in this culture, but that was true. So what Isaiah is saying, did some other deity consult with Yahweh, or did Yahweh consult with some other deity? I don't think so. In Egyptian culture, it would be the deity of Thoth would have been the one who gave counsel to the other gods. And the Ugarit, it was the, the deity, the counseling deity, Kothar, who would have given counsel to the other Ugarit gods. And in Babylonian culture, now we're closer to this text. You remember Marduk, you've heard the word Marduk before, uh, the high god of the Babylonians. But he had a counselor, and his counselor was I, E-A. So Marduk, you need a counselor. The gods of the Ugarit, you need a counselor. Uh, The gods of Egypt, you need a counselor. The God of Israel needs no counselor. Amen? He doesn't consult with anyone. 
Why would he consult with anyone? Because he's an all-wise God. No need. So no one has taken measure of his spirit. No one can calculate out God and who he is and his will and his wisdom. He doesn't have to go to some other deity to ask how should he intervene when it comes to the people of God returning from exile. Is this long enough? Should we now bring them back? And what way should we bring them back? He doesn't go to another deity and say, how will I do? How should I go about it? And another deity says to him, well, perhaps what you can do is raise up the Persians. And what you can do is use Cyrus and call him your servant. Oh, excellent plan. No. There is no consulting with Yahweh. He is the all-knowing God. And you say to yourself, okay, here you're talking about the gods of Egypt and the Ugarit, and you're talking about the gods of Babylon. What does that have to do with my life today? Everything. 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 This is the God that you trust today. Your circumstances are different, but where are you going to go? What's your refuge? What's your source of wisdom? What's your source of physical and spiritual power? It is the living God. So he is an all wise God. Believe him and trust him. Notice what it says as well. uh, Just briefly, verse 14. And who taught him in the paths of justice and taught him knowledge? Again, obviously no one. And the paths of justice and The word here for justice means uh, the expression of God's righteous order in society. And no one has taught God to do what is right. God will do what is right for his people and to glorify his name. He will do what is right to defeat every foe that comes before him. And God will do what is right to gather his people to himself, which he promised in verses 10 and 11. And he will care for them like a, a father would, bringing in these nursing lambs. No deity tells him what is right or wrong. Here's a third truth that should encourage our hearts and surely encourage the heart of the people of God. Number three, God will keep his promises because he is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over the nations. I read the text, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. They're clear, isn't it? But notice what he does. There's a shift. Notice he goes from the rhetorical questions to this direct assertion. He says, here is my statement. Because he says here, behold. So it's no longer, uh, are the nations a drop from a bucket? Are they significant or insignificant? No, he says, behold, they are, in fact, a drop from a bucket. So what he's saying here, now, here's my argument. History proves my case. When we look through history, the nations have always been insignificant when it comes to God. And so what he does, verse 15, he gives us this metaphor. And this metaphor really captures the insignificance of the nations to God. And what is the metaphor? The drop from the bucket. I think with me for a moment. Uh, these great words of comfort that come to the people of God are dropped from a bucket. Why? Because uh, it's, again, not something that we do often, but I've done it. I've been to other, I remember time in Haiti and, and going there and uh, where we stayed was right near, uh, right near the, the beach there. That's not saying too much necessarily. Um, and we had to take our showers and our showers was literally going with a bucket and going to a well and pulling the bucket, the water from the well and going to the back and putting on some soap and pouring it over your body. That was it. Uh, no pulsing shower, no rainforest setting or nothing like that. (laughs) Right. That's what we did. And guess what happens when you're going with a bucket and you're walking with it? What happens? Some of the water does what? It sloshes out. Or even when you're pulling it up from the well, a drop of it comes out. But you don't think about, oh, let me catch that drop. You don't do that. He said, you're insignificant. It's not even the water in the bucket, but it's a drip that comes from the bucket. Who are the nations? 
And this is why in Psalm 2, uh, God can look down from heaven to the nations and he laughs because he says, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are they planning some vain thing? And he's saying, essentially, Babylon, you can keep my people no longer than I allow. Which means for us, one goes through difficulty in life. um, You will not face more difficulty than God allows. There's no power that can say, yes, I will hurt him more. Just like it was with Job. um, God said to the devil, what? No, the limitations. And here are your limitations. And there are limitations in each of our lives. Ah, man, just saddened story that I read even this morning from people lost their lives. One journalist killed as well. And as this intensified, and I was looking at some uh, before and after pictures of of what is happening in Ukraine in one area, the apartment buildings and, and beautiful trees all around. And it was from a satellite image. And I thought, what a pleasant looking community. And the next is leveled. Everything is burned away. Life just changed just like that. But here's the reality. None of that could happen unless the sovereign God allows it. But what about, you say, Putin and what he's done and the Russians and what they've done and perhaps more so Putin at this point. Who is he? No one. God has been causing the rise and fall of nations through history. And the metaphor captures it. And then he says even false. So on a scale, you put a speck of dust on it. Does it move the scale? Obviously not. All of us have something on us right now from the moment you woke up this morning to you getting in the car and getting out and walking up. And what, what are you covered with? Well, clothing, that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Dusty clothing. Amen. Particles that you picked up on the way, have you not? And even this morning, I got out of the car, and of course, it's the black slacks, and I was noticing all these things, and I had a, a lint, you know, the little roller, and I rode it literally in the parking lot. Where did that come from? <laughs> Guess what? Did it weigh me down? Then I thought, oh, my word, this lint is on my pants. You know, what's that? <laughs> did I do that? Insignificant. Insignificant. And what does he say to the nations? You're like dust. You're insignificant. You will not alter my plan for the redemption of my people. You will not alter my plan for their chastisement and their restoration. And in today's world, you will not alter my plan for my children's sanctification. You will not alter my plan for the moment of their birth and their death. Just like those people today, gone. But no quicker or no later than God has sovereignly allowed. And there was going to be a day where you will cross over the Jordan, if you will, and it will not be sooner or later than God has allowed. You have to rest in that. And as much as we can do certain things, certain things, but guess what, friends? I can go on my walks and runs, and I can avoid certain dumb carbs, and I can do other things like that. But guess what? Who knows? I'm crossing the Atlantic, and you hear that UA Flight 667 is, is lost from the radar. I've been to some places where I've seen dead bodies in the ground, and I could have been... Kidnapped, and we had to try to get our way out of the country. And who knows, I could go somewhere, and they say, then Hargrove, we. And hopefully, some of you would shed a tear for me. <laughs> he's gone. But also, some tears of joy. He's also gone. Wow. He is in a much better place. I can't speed that up or I can't slow it down. That moment is going to happen because God is sovereign over the nations, He is sovereign over every element of your life. Just like the dust, in the sense that he is indifferent to the nations, because remember, God has a divine plan for the nations. Because what does the scripture tell us? He's going to bring men from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. They're going to come together to worship the living God. And the suffering servant was the one who would give his life for men 
from all of those different nations. But they don't change his plans. This is what he's saying. And even the islands, what does he say about the islands? But he, behold, again, see. See what he's saying, see. Before it was a rhetorical question, now he's saying, here is the evidence. History tells us that the nations are nothing. And see, he is the one who lifts up the islands like fine dust. Islands, you think about, um, uh, well, some folks here from the Philippines, right? Philippines, you know, 7,000 islands that are part of the Philippines. That's pretty cool. 7,000. Some are not, there's a certain uncertainty about what is the total number of islands in the world. Because you can say, well, the islands are in the oceans. What about the seas? Um, there are even definitions about an island that's on a lake. Uh, and if we add them together, they think perhaps there's about 700,000. And even some say, I'm not even sure if we should say that. Perhaps it's a million or so islands. He says, oh, that's, what are they like? Hmm, let's remind ourselves. He lists them up like fine dust. They're insignificant. And then notice verse 16 here, a figure of speech that captures inadequacy. What do we mean by inadequacy? Verse 16, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor is its beast enough for a burnt offering. What is he communicating here? What's this figure of speech? And Lebanon, in one sense, represents um, anything that to be, could be even this burnt offering. Why is he communicating that? What is the point? Of, what do I mean by inadequacy? God is so great and so wonderful and such a God to be worshipped. If you were to create an altar, and that altar would be Lebanon, and you would burn every tree that's in Lebanon, and every beast in Lebanon, it is not enough for me. That's what he's communicating. So you have the very universe, in one sense, is the temple of God. I've measured it out. I've calculated it. I've weighed it all out. You have the entire universe that's the temple of God, if you will. And here is Lebanon. In one sense, it represents the altar of God. And it says, if you burned everything in Lebanon, it will be insufficient to declare my complete, utter uniqueness. And you worry about Babylon? (laughs) And you worry about the circumstances of your life? And when we think when it comes to its beasts and its wood, even, with, even today, you think about getting um, the trees of Lebanon, a wood from Lebanon. It's still something to be prized. And perhaps that's even one reason that he does it, because I don't have time, but we maybe at some other time go through Isaiah and see the references to Lebanon. So he's saying even if you take the quantity that's in Lebanon and the quality of the wood, which is worthy of me, it still would not be enough. Because I am just that great. This is what he tells them. Um, a literal statement of comparison. A literal statement of comparison. What What is he meaning here? Um, verse 17. All the nations are nothing before him. They are regarded by him as nothing and meaningless. Really, he is just by way of, of language, just communicating again and again. It's like he's, he's driving the nail further and further into the wood. But here's the question. What's this message of insufficient offerings? And I think it's this. First, you have to understand this in context. God cannot be manipulated by his creation. Why is that important? Let me give you an example. Um, Mount Carmel, Elijah. Uh, the prophets of Baal. Remember what is happening there? Who remembers that story? Um, so Elijah says, what? Well, let's see who's going to answer uh, first. You guys go first. And what are all the prophets and priests doing? They are shouting out and to him, and they start to cut themselves, and they're dancing. And then what does Elijah do? He mocks him. He says, well, out to him. And they call, and they call, and they call, and they're exhausted, and they made these offerings, and still, he did not move. So you have to understand, in the culture, if you offered up this wonderful offering, then that was going to move the deity to do something for you. But Yahweh is saying, no, offerings, I'm worthy of them, but they would not change my divine plan. 
I think about this when it comes to, you know, the Christian life. Some people think that somehow if they just make the right decisions and live life just the right way, that they can alter God's plan for their life. Now, we should obviously live for holiness and godliness, but don't think that somehow you're going to change the divine mind. It's not going to happen. And then God will only be satisfied with perfection. This is a beautiful setup here. Because what God is saying, you take effort up to me and it will not be satisfying. But what does Isaiah tell us? There will be something that will satisfy God because only God can be satisfied by God. You are insignificant. Lebanon is insignificant. Your thinking is insignificant, but God is not. So it's setting us up for what? The suffering servant. There's but one sacrifice, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That will be satisfying to God. Here's the fourth and final truth. God will keep his promises because he is beyond comparison. And so he ends here. He goes back to the rhetorical. To whom then will you liken God? And what likeness will you compare with him? Of course, he talks about the idol that the craftsman casts. And he puts gold over it and silver over it. But he says in verse 20, uh, he who is too impoverished with such an offer, what does he do? He seeks out a skillful craftsman. He goes out and get a, tr- a tree. But notice something that is utterly ridiculous about it in verse 20. The craftsman has to do what? Now, what's interesting about this language, a skillful craftsman, what has he said about, what has God said about himself through Isaiah? He has marked off the heavens by the span. So he's shown his skill in creating the universe. And now you need a craftsman to make you a God. Utterly ridiculous. Because your God will do what? He will topple over. Uh, And notice if you go back with me to verse 12, he marked off the heavens by the span. And I didn't mention that before. Do you know what a span is? A span is essentially the distance between the thumb and the little pinky. And uh, so like here, there we go. So there we go. That's a span. Okay. And it's actually small. I've shaken the hands of some NBA basketball players and I thought, wow. So that's when it's like when I do it to other people. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's a span. And so he says, this is what's beautiful about the language. He's marked up the heavens by the span. And now you would serve a God that takes a craftsman to measure out and to hammer it down so it doesn't fall over, it makes no sense. But the human mind, apart from divine intervention, doesn't make sense, right? It can't make sense. No. And notice this idea that it doesn't totter. It doesn't move around. Um, If you remember um, Dagon, uh, the Philistines, right? First Samuel 5. Uh, they have the Ark of the Covenant. They bring it into their place of worship. Even breaks his face, doesn't he? So they put him up again. And what happens again? Boom, falls over. Then they get a clue and they say, wait a minute. This is bad news. How is Dagon keeps falling before the Ark of the Covenant? And the Ark of the Covenant is representing now covenant fidelity. It's representing God and his holiness. And this is why I remember when the man of God wanted to touch it and help it, what, did, what happened to him? He died. I don't need help. You don't help me. You don't intervene. If in fact you believe that the Ark of the Covenant represents my holiness and my power and my covenant fidelity, why would you try to help it? It's just fine. So Dagon, before God, even this great Dagon, the God of the Philistines, falls before him. And now you are going to go out and get a piece of wood and worship sense whatsoever. None. God is superior. And what's beautiful, one last thought before I close. Go back with me to verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? And often God, we think Elohim. But here, it is simply El. So why El? Why instead of Elohim, why El instead of Elohim? Because he is trying to understand the mindset of the people at this time. El would have been the superior, the superior God of the Canaanites, El. 
So he's saying, no, here is the God. He is beyond your pantheon of gods. He is beyond, he is beyond these impotent gods. He is the very creator, creator of the universe. The heavens are measured just by the span. All the waters are in his hand. And you would compare him. To whom would you compare him? What will you compare him? So his, those are the arguments to trust the living God. A final thought for you, though. Exonerated by DNA. You remember I mentioned um, Marine, former Marine, heinous crime, young lady, circumstances, witnesses. Um, you know what happened to him? There's a, a group called Innocence Project, and they take cases now using DNA to see if a person can be exonerated because now the evidence, our DNA, what's unique about us, right, says, no, not him, not her. Yes, him. Yes, her. And it's interesting that in cases taken by them, uh, 43% have been proven innocent. 43%. 15 inconclusive. But think about that. 43%. And I've read a number of stories, 15 years in jail, taken out, 20 years in jail, out, on death row. And that, that former Marine was, in fact, in death row in Baltimore, Maryland. 1989, DNA evidence freed him. So DNA, what are you talking about? What is DNA? It's a, a statement of, it says what? It's something about uniqueness, is it not? What, what is God communicating in this passage? I am a God that is what? Absolutely unique. I am El. The God. I am Yahweh. The covenant keeping God. I measure out the heavens by the span. Trust me, that is my DNA. So almost to say to Babylon and to you as well, God should always be exonerated. To say, why would I not trust this God? But sometimes when we doubt, it's as if we're saying, you're guilty. That's an impossibility. Father, we thank you for your greatness. Help us to think about ways in which we can apply this to our lives. As we go through just trials and tribulations. We see the people of God who were deserving of their punishment. But because you were a great covenant God, you would bring them back again. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name, amen.